Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. This is a very important place in terms of um, the new nation's legitimacy um, in its first few years of existence. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor David Irvin talking about the Continental Army in the Ohio River Valley and the American Revolution in the West. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, David Irvin, and he'll be talking about the Continental Army in the Ohio River Valley and the American Revolution in the West. You know, this is a subject that's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I have authored six books on the American Revolution, primarily focused on the American Revolution in the West. And I can tell you that it is one of the most criminally understudied aspects of the war. So much so uh, that many people, when they study the American Revolution, don't even realize that the war in the West was going on. I always make the comparison... Uh, that stuns people, that the way we treat the American Revolution in the West would be like if, when you studied World War II, you never talked about the Pacific Theater. You focused all your efforts on Europe, and you never even mentioned the war in the Pacific against Japan. It's that big, and I'm not being dramatic. So, this article by David Irvin is sorely needed, and much, much more research needs to be done to truly understand the complexity, the importance, uh, and really just the sheer violence uh, in the American Revolution in the West. Because it truly reveals the American Revolution to be much more of a civil war uh, than anything else. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with David Irvin. David Irvin. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Tell us about your background. I was born and raised in West Virginia. I served uh, four years in the Army Infantry, did a combat deployment to Iraq. I came back and studied early American history at West Virginia University. Um, I wrote a lot about the Iraq War, and then I ended up circling back to early American history, just kind of a local interest and also some some genealogy brought me back here. It's a fascinating topic and period to, to study. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, um, when you're reading about the American Revolution as a whole, uh, most of the focus is on the Eastern Theater of Operations and also the, uh, the Southern Theater. And the Upper Ohio watershed is actually incredibly important 
to not only the American Revolution, but it is the first theater of war for the brand new nation that emerges from the American Revolution. And um, between the, the British operations out here during the French and Indian War, then the American Revolution, and then the um, Indian Wars of the Old Northwest in the early American Republic, it's just a very important area. And it didn't seem like it got as much attention as it perhaps should. So it seemed like something cool to write about, but it's just a really rich, deep history and um, pretty fascinating to dig into it and then to bring that to other folks to, to check out too. What kind of place was the Western frontier in the 18th century? Uh, It was a place that was ever changing. Uh, It was constantly in transition uh, between the, early phases of settlement prior to the French and Indian war to the, the retraction of the frontier during that conflict. And then the uh, further Anglo-American expansion following the uh, treaty of Fort Stanwix. And even the in-between period there with the proclamation line of 1763, uh, it was a place that was in flux politically and militarily throughout the uh, latter half of the 18th century, and it was a it was a borderland in every sense of the word. Um, you had Anglo-American settlers out here that were in close contact with uh, American Indian tribes across the Ohio, and they came to mirror each other in a lot of ways, partly because of trade, partly because of similar life ways, because the the terrain and the the place just really demanded something different from Anglo-American settlers. So start reading about uh, people in the late 18th century taking on Indian dress, for example, with moccasins and leggings and stuff like that. And um, kind of living like Native Americans did too. You've got corn farming and you've also got hunting to supplement that. And um, it was also a war zone for, a really long period of time uh, up until the 1790s. So from the 1750s and 1790s, that 40 years is a very dangerous place. And uh, the reason we know where these nucleuses or nuclei of settlement existed is because there were fortifications there, something like close to 200 fortifications um, along the Ohio River watershed up here. So it's, um, it's a really fascinating place, actually. How did the British operate in this area before the revolution? So the British went through several different iterations of strategies on how to deal with the forks of the Ohio, which is uh, what we refer to as, as Pittsburgh. Now at first they tried to send lone George Washington and his partner out to demand that the French leave the forks of the Ohio. And after he was rebuffed, they sent him back with a force of provincials to to kick the Brit or the French out of Pittsburgh. And um, after he was defeated at Fort Necessity, then they sent General Edward Braddock with this regular force to cut a road across the Alleghenies and take the forts of Ohio by force. And he was uh, horrifically defeated outside of Pittsburgh. And then in 1758, they sent another overwhelming force with um, General Forbes. 
and he managed to cut a different road across Pennsylvania and uh, between French desertions and um, um, their native allies not really showing up to to be invested in this one, the French finally did depart. And then after they gained control of it, they left a company there um, at the end of the war. So in 1763, the place was besieged by a confederacy of Indians um, coming out of Ohio. And then they sent a relief force with Bouquet, and then they abandoned it again, and it was kind of left to the colonists. Uh, Then in 1763, they said nobody can settle out here. And 1768, they they negotiated a treaty, uh, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, and people rushed out here anyway. Uh, At that point, the British government um, across the Atlantic was sort of done dealing with this place, and they left it up to the to the colonial governments. So, the next um, conflict out here that kind of um, contested control of the region was fought by um, uh, Lord Dunmore, the Virginia royal governor. He raised an army of uh, militia and fought at the Battle of Point Pleasant. He led another prong of an army into Ohio, uh, and that concluded with the Treaty of Camp Charlotte. So the British tried many things to wrestle control of this region and kind of had a mixed experience by the end of it. What were the biggest obstacles to controlling this area, both militarily and politically? Uh, Sort of the same answer for both. Uh, Militarily, the logistics were first and foremost the greatest challenge. Um, The journey from the population centers of Pennsylvania, uh, further east, out to Pittsburgh, it's about two weeks to a month. Um, Two weeks if if conditions were perfect and a month if things were pretty normal, like you have to wait to cross high creeks and stuff. Um, So getting forces out here was incredibly challenging. And the vast distances you're talking was also um, hampering lines of communication. So if something happened in Pittsburgh, it was going to take two weeks to a month to get back to a population center to get some answers and then another two weeks to a month to um, get a, a course of action to go from there. And if there was a relief force needed for some kind of conflict or something like that, it was going to be the same um, time and distance and any force sent here would need to be supplied. Uh, politically, it's sort of the same answer. You've got a very isolated, um, very isolated, very small population out here. And you saw with Governor Dunmore actually had to come out here and um, command the militia to go on this expedition in 1774. And then later during the American Revolution, you've got Patrick Henry really pulling his hair out, trying to control militiamen on posts like Fort Blair down in Point Pleasant. Um, So the the geography really hampered any kind of control coming back from the east. So it was was that, and the, the population was very spread out out here. So it wasn't like they could go to Pittsburgh make decisions and everyone would follow the suit. There were um, miles and miles of, of river bottom and uh, mountain meadows that they had to reach to. Talk about the importance 
of the installation of Fort Pitt. It'll really change the complexion of the region. So Fort Pitt is located on what's called the Forks of the Ohio. Um, the Ohio River forms when the Allegheny River flows into the Monongahela. Monongahela comes up from the south and the Allegheny generally northeast. And the Ohio River eventually flows into Mississippi and you can get all the way down to New Orleans. So this place really was a gateway to the west. Um, before the French and Indian War, the French viewed it as a point at which they could block further um, Anglo expansion west. And then when the British took it, they saw it as a point to um, block anyone else from getting back across the mountains. So it was kind of like this buffer zone for a while between these colonial powers. And then um, later during the American Revolution, um, you have to remember that a lot of the folks in charge during the American Revolution had uh, interest in acquiring land west of the mountains. Um, America was definitely a forward-thinking kind of place, and part of that forward-thinking included looking out to the west, uh, eventually um, thinking of some western expansion. And Pittsburgh was going to be the linchpin of all of this, and um, so it was, it was important for uh, lots of reasons. And then by the time the American Revolution comes around, it's also the biggest population center uh, west of the mountains in this general region. So um, really, it the short answer is it was important to control the interior of the, the American continent. Who did the Continental Army initially place in command of this new Western department? Well, at first they didn't have anyone in command because the idea was they could keep the various Indian nations uh, who lived in the Ohio neutral and they could kind of exercise salutary neglect over this region and not have to spend um, continental resources to secure it. Uh, eventually, though, as tensions heightened and as um, raids began and as there was kind of a clamor out here for greater involvement from Continental Congress, um, they appointed Brigadier General Edward Hand. Um, Edward Hand had served in the uh, British company that was posted out here by itself, I think, during um, uh, Pontiac's War. Um, Hand arrived in April 1777 he was in charge of just a couple of companies of regulars, and he had nominal command over the militia. There's some confusing correspondence between him and Patrick Henry, of um, who's actually in charge of the militia. Patrick Henry tells Hand that, yes, he's in charge of them operationally, but no, he can't just call them up on his own. And so there again, you have that that geographical obstacle of uh, political control causing some confusion in the chains of command there. Um, Hand wasn't able to do too much with what little he had. And then in May, 1778, they appointed uh, General Lachlan McIntosh to command the Western Department. And the plan was originally to raise regiments out here for McIntosh to, to command but um, 
the recruiting pool being what it was, which was not exactly robust, Washington dispatched the 13th Virginia and the 8th Pennsylvania regiments, which had been raised here initially. Um, the idea was if we send these regiments back to Pitt, perhaps some of their deserters will come back into the ranks. And they had been promised they could stay there anyway. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a, um, one bird with two stones there. Um, after McIntosh's semi-successful campaign to build a fort in Ohio, uh, Fort Lawrence, um, he was frustrated enough to ask for, uh, to ask to be relieved, went back to the main army and, um, Colonel Broadhead took his place in March, 1779. Uh, Colonel Broadhead was initially the commander of the eighth Pennsylvania. Uh, Broadhead stayed in command until, um, like mid 1781. Uh, he managed to pull off two campaigns, one of them being the Allegheny expedition in 1779, which was intended to be in conjunction with Sullivan's campaign against the Iroquois in Western New York, but they were never able to uh, make a junction with those forces, but he was able to destroy a few Seneca towns. And by his own telling, it was the the most successful campaign in the history of the American revolution. Um, After Broadhead, we had Colonel John Gibson, who was initially commander of the 13th Virginia. He took over because Broadhead was recalled to the East to be court-martialed. The citizens of Pittsburgh were quite perturbed by Broadhead's manner of exercising control in the region. And there were allegations of fraud and misuse of government property, theft of government property, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, And then finally, we had General William Irvine, September 1781. And by the time he arrived, the the Continental Force here was just a shell of its former self. Um, I think the returns have them listed at about 200 folks. And the war was kind of winding down at that point. There was certainly no more interest in launching a Western expedition. And um, the war ended then in 1783 with Irvine uh, disbanding the regiments from there. Let's talk about the commanders of the Western Department. Uh, in your opinion, who do you think was the best and who do you think was the worst? So this is sort of a tough question uh, because there are different contexts in which these commanders served. And there are also a couple of different contexts of, of what you would use to measure success. Uh, for instance, General McIntosh was a pretty successful commander in that he managed to successfully project force into the Ohio country and constructed a fort there that withstood a siege for about a month and held on until the summer of 1779 and only abandoned it in order to go on an expedition in a different direction. Um, His ultimate goal was to be Detroit, but the conditions out here and the uh, lateness of the season by the time they got to Fort Lawrence and such kind of precluded him from from ever accomplishing that mission. Um, Broadhead 
conducted a couple of offensive operations, one of them into the Allegheny country, as I discussed uh, previously, destroyed several Seneca towns. Another one in 1781 was sort of a lightning raid at this place called Kashikton. There was a segment of the Delaware nation that had been allied with the United States for a while. And when they turned, Broadhead launched an expedition and destroyed that that town of Kashuk Town and returned pretty quickly with a few casualties. Um, but Broadhead was also the Continental Commander that was recalled because the people of Pittsburgh couldn't put up with him. And if you're thinking of the Continental Army in terms of um, lending some legitimacy to the Continental Congress in this very far-flung region, uh, Broadhead would be the worst there because uh, he was just so overbearing to these folks that it gave them a, a very bad taste in their mouths about um, the Continental Congress and federal control of this region. So um, sort of a complicated answer for a complicated question when you break it down a little bit. Overall, in your view, how did the Continental Army handle the Western frontier overall during the American Revolution? Considering what the Continental Army had, uh, I think they did pretty well. Um, At first, there was barely any Continental presence, and they were just kind of bolstering the defensive network that the militia had set up. Um, When they got greater numbers out here, they did conduct several offensive campaigns, which Um, some were more successful than others, but the fact that they did exert some pressure on the, the Indians who are allied with the British in Ohio, um, kind of speaks highly of what they were able to accomplish. And given the terrain and the distances they had to cover and the supply shortages that their counterparts in the main army out East had to deal with, um, compounding that with the geographical distance and the isolation out here, I would say they were pretty successful. And uh, the other, the other part of that answer too, is that um, military force managed to not disintegrate, which once you delve into the history a bit and learn about um, the challenges they faced, that in itself is gives the, the, the soldiers out here pretty high marks because, um, you know, the guys at the siege of Fort Lawrence, for instance, were eating their moccasins, which moccasins after a few weeks are pretty gross articles of clothing. And um, the fact that they didn't capitulate then, for example, uh, speaks quite highly of them. How do you feel this article helps us to understand the revolutionary era better? Uh, well, I think it, it broadens the understanding of what the American revolution was. Um, You've got the war to the East, you've got the civil war in the South and to a certain extent, the civil war um, all through the country Uh, that was happening out, out here on the Western frontier too. Um, You had British opposition coming out of Detroit, uh, leading some of these war parties into the, into the settlements and such. Um, taking a much broader view though, this area was going to be extremely important 
to the brand new country that emerged at the end of the American Revolution. Uh, the United States Army, under the, the federal constitution, faced some of its worst defeats in the Ohio country. And Pitts, Pittsburgh was a part of this. So um, this region as a whole played a huge role, um, probably more so after the country was, was formed when the revolution was won. Uh, this was kind of its first test, uh, the wars of the old Northwest, and kind of in conjunction with that, the, the War of 1812. And seeing how that, how that started and what kind of people were out here, for instance, during the Whiskey Rebellion, um, I think gives a pretty good understanding of um, kind of an overlooked area in the American Revolution. It wasn't all necessarily at Yorktown or Trenton or uh, the Battle of Long Island. It was also a company of soldiers getting placed in a spot like Point Pleasant and told to hang on while um, hopefully they got some supplies down the river to um, keep them from starving to death. But um, I just think it, it overall delves into a, a smaller area of the revolution and looking at it through a microscope, um, it kind of highlights some of the, the struggles the Continental Army faced and then backing that microscope out and taking a broader view. This is a very important place in terms of um, the new nation's legitimacy um, in its first few years of existence. David Irvin, thanks again. Hey, thanks for having me. The music played in this episode include works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.